My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters. The flavor, it just connects. Then you drink beer or you smell beer, it immediately connects to your memory. In terms of beer, um, I would say Ukraine is quite a young scene. It's only 10 years old, but now it's on par with any European country, I would say. With the Good Beer Matters podcast, I intended to keep the stories about beer and not about the news. Sometimes these two intersect. Sometimes there are news stories that are far bigger than beer. This time, however, it's through the heartache of war that we find the story of a people and their beer. A great experience lies at the intersection of craft and culture. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. For the craft and culture of beer, this is episode 119 of Good Beer Matters with certified Cicerone and writer from Ukraine, Lana Svitankova. Well, hello again. This is the Good Beer Matters podcast, and we are uh, just in the early stages of our virtual, our my, uh, our virtual world tour uh, to try and carve out what is the beer experience uh, around the world. Um, and today uh, we've got a, a new friend of mine in beer, uh, Lana Svintatkova. Did I say that right? Yeah. Well, you, you say it because I know my pronunciation is horrible most of the time. No worries. You can just say Lana and it's fine. Uh, but the full name is Lana Svitenkova. See, way better than, than I could pronounce it. Um, Lana, thank you so much for coming uh, onto the Good Beer Matters podcast. Of course, uh, we're, we're talking to you today because you know beer, you're a beer writer, beer translator, uh, and, and many more things. Um, uh, so I've got a little bit of a list. I want to make sure I've got it all down. You're a certified Cicerone, BJ, yeah, right. uh, BJCP judge, uh, and I mentioned uh, you're a writer uh, uh, and you're translator. You've uh, translated the book um, uh, The Beer, Taste the Evolution in 50 Styles, uh, and, and uh, you're currently in Switzerland, but you're originally from Ukraine. Yeah, that's right. I, I do like lots of stuff in beer, uh, like uh, some friends of mine says, I have many hats in this industry, but yeah, I don't brew myself yet, but uh, I think I did everything in uh, terms of beer, um, educating, uh, translating, writing. Um, I also a uh, beer runner. I started a beer running club as well. So uh, to get a bit, a bit more uh, exercise, uh, well, but yeah. we are not exercising to get more fit. We exercise to be able to drink more. <laughs> so that's like a club for its benefits, I would say. I, I love that. Well, and, and honestly, from my experience, beer tastes better when you've earned it. After a long run, after a long bike ride, or after a long hike or whatever it may be, beer just tastes better. Do you feel the same way? Absolutely. Uh, give me goza anytime because it has uh, a bit of salt. Like, you know, uh, yeah. I prefer this type of electrolytes in my life. So that's why, uh, yeah, something light, but really refreshing. It's perfect. Yeah, I, I call goza the grown-up Gatorade, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, either that or a, or a margarita. Um, so uh, what I want to dive into more a little bit is about, tell us about, uh, you, you mentioned you've done everything but brew. Do you homebrew? Um, I've did some attempts, uh, during, uh, COVID, but, um, well, 
I've got two good beers and one got sour, so I'm still on the good count, but yeah, I, I will have to do some more on that. Well, and, and but that should be no problem for you because when beer goes sour, that that's a marketing problem, not a brewing problem. Right? <laughs> and uh, I, well, I've known plenty of breweries that uh, had a beer that turned bad, but they they tried to salvage it and rename it. And <laughs> well, that was a sour chocolate porter, so it would be quite difficult to sell it. But anyway, uh, that that was a drinking problem. So no, we we just didn't drink that. We gotcha. are grown ups. We are grown ups. If if something doesn't taste good, we are not drinking that just because of the sake of the alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and, and that's a good point because you know you know uh, there's no point in drinking bad beer. Life's too short for bad beer, and so uh, especially um, you know as you. Uh, go along our journey of BJCP Judge and Cicerone, uh, I've thrown out not half as much beer as I've actually consumed because it's just, if it's not good, it's not worth it. Yeah, sure. There's too many good beers around to um, spend your time, money, and space in a stomach for bad beer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What I want to find out about is um, uh, is you're you're a writer. Um, I, I I'm a beer writer. You're a beer writer. I want to know more. Tell us about um, you know the books you've written, the articles you've written, and and the, the time spent writing about beer. So basically, uh, I do all my mostly all my writing in Ukrainian because we didn't have any. Uh, we didn't have any books. Uh, we didn't have any. Mm, I would say blogs or whatever. So um, I'm just, I just really love beer and I want more people to enjoy it as well. And to think of it, not just uh, like yellow fizzy stuff, but a thing you can enjoy properly. And there's so many flavors and types of beer and aromas. And it's, it's such a vast universe uh, and i just want people to enjoy it more and then you know more you can appreciate it more so that's why i embark on journey on telling people more about beer starting from um, some obvious things like how to read the label what all these um, acronyms are for um, what why the beer can taste like this or like that and um, of course there's a lot of myths as well which needs uh, myth busting for example uh, we have this myth that uh, dark beer is always stronger mm. which i don't know where it's coming from but it's there or for example one of the most popular myths is uh, that hops have uh, too much uh, phytoestrogen and like um, it's bad for men to drink beer because they will grow boobs well <laughs> it doesn't help i try that it doesn't help so. well i i don't know what uh, what the, when men who drink way too much beer do develop you know boobs at some point <laughs> but, but i think I that think... includes sausage and bread and pastries and... yes of course the stuff you eat with beer it's like intricately connected so it's not only about drinking but eating and gaining more weight as well so yeah um that's why i've been doing mostly uh like some uh, short educational writing uh and then i translated three 
free books, uh, well, four, five already, but uh, I'm still looking for a publisher for one and another one would be published online. So it will be easily accessible for everyone without any fee. And in the end, on, during COVID, I was, I, I had some time and I remembered how many people were saying, so we want to know more about beer, especially in the industry, like barmen's be tenders, uh, etc., um, servers, and they wanted to know more about beer, but they said we can't spend money on expensive books, or we don't have um, profic proficiency in languages, so we can't read stuff on internet mm -hmm. in other languages. So I wanted to do a, like a short booklet for maybe like thirty pages about beer tending for free, and. It ended up to be a, a small book, uh, about 100, 130 pages. And uh, a friend of mine helped me to make a PDF of, out of it. So we released it and surprisingly, there are so many requests for publishing it. So we asked people how many people want to buy it and we ended up planning to print it. Uh, but uh, it was supposed to be in February and yeah, we will have to wait for for a better time for this now. Yeah. Now, was this specifically in Ukraine? Uh, yeah, sure. In, uh, it was written in Ukrainian and we plan to publish it in Ukraine. Okay. But but have there been, uh, have there been uh, uh, people from other countries in Europe uh, asking for something along these lines or was that just specifically... Ukraine. Oh, no, no, like nobody speaks Ukrainian besides Ukrainian, so okay. uh, it wouldn't be of any um, use for other European countries. Gotcha. Well, if only we knew a translator. <laughs> well, you know, uh, people in other countries, they have enough books uh, and uh, sure. like English books, like loads of books in English and in German as well. There's lots of books in German. Um, uh, I've seen books in French, so uh, it's quite natural for people to have uh, both translated and written books in their own language for their uh, own market, so they can enjoy it and uh, read it easily. Uh, some people can read English books, of course, but yeah, yeah, every country has its own language and publishing, it's, prop it's proper to do in national language. I guess uh, being American, I I just assume that, you know, we Americans, if we know a second language, hooray for our team, everyone high five. But uh, but in Europe, I, I the people I know who are European, I'm just so used to them knowing five, seven, ten languages. It, it's, it's just ridiculous. I just assume that the whole translation thing is not much of an issue when you get into a place like Europe. Well, it depends, you know, like in Switzerland, they have four official languages. Yeah, um, that's true. So mostly people speak at least three plus English, but yeah, it depends. It really depends. For example, uh, I know that in France, it's mostly like French speaking and English, like almost everyone speaks English. So that's, yeah. that's pretty convenient. Which makes it easy for us Americans that <laughs> we, we don't have to learn a second language. You've learned ours, which is not really fair, but, uh, uh, but we'll, we'll talk about that on a different podcast. Um, uh, first of all, you, you mentioned Switzerland. Um, uh, I have, uh, you know, some, some ties to Switzerland. We have very, very close, um, 
uh, family friends that uh, that are from Switzerland. Um, uh, in uh, I, well, last time I checked, I think they're still in Zurich. They've kind of been moving around and. Um, uh, but you're in Zurich, right? Yeah, Do I, that's right. Yeah. Um, tell us about the beer culture in Switzerland, both the macros and even even like the the state of the of the craft brewing in in Switzerland. Well, uh, to be honest, I was extremely surprised to get to know that Switzerland is a country with the highest number of breweries per capita in the world. Wow! Uh, this is this is you know like type of fun fact. But uh, the attitude to that is quite different for different people. I mean, like uh, for expats, it's like, wow. But uh, Swiss, Swiss people, they're not that happy about it. It's because of this very um, weird legislative, legislative quirk. Because if you are a home brewer, uh, you don't need any like papers. So uh, home brewing is uh, perfectly legal. But if you're brewing more than 400 liters per year, you have to pay taxes on the beer mm. you brew. So basically you have to go and uh, you have to be registered. This is for free. Um, so basically not do much paperwork or additional payments. Uh, you just get registered and you're paying your taxes. Sometimes people who brew less also go and register just because they can. So um, currently, there is like approximately 8 million people and 1,300 breweries here. So it makes uh, one brewery per like 7,000 people. But they are mostly hobby brewers. They, they brew on a very small uh, amount, um, like they produce like tiny amounts of beer. Sometimes they bottle, sometimes not. Uh, it depends. Um, on how much time they have and they can sell. So basically, oh, wow. if uh, they, they have to invite the food inspector and if they see that they, the place is like clean um, and nothing wrong with it, they give them permission to sell. So basically they're in a very, very interesting um, point in between microbreweries and home brewers, in terms they they can go to the festivals and sell their beer, or they can open their garage and sell their beer from home, but it's not a way to survive for them. It's just a hobby yeah. with benefits, so they can earn some money and cover the costs of the hobby. But also because it's a hobby, they are open at very random hours. For example, they can be open for two hours on Wednesday. Uh, from five till seven, or maybe on Saturday, just from 10 in the morning until one, and then they're done and they have their weekend. So uh, even if the quality can be not so high or like some styles can be um, not really popular, they can, they have their own audience, for example, like almost every village have a brewery or two or three. So they know then they open, they will go, they buy their beer and that's it. So even if the, uh, so um, sometimes uh, Swiss brewers said that these small breweries, they are spoiling the reputation of the Swiss beer. But for me, it's like, it's impossible to do because you can't get that beer. Um, it was a pet project of mine. Uh, I've tried to visit as much this breweries as possible. And in three years I've did 
105 maybe but it's very very difficult to get there sometimes they're located somewhere very uh like far from the main uh transportation routes or they are open only on like friday or thursday so usually mm -hmm. i can go on weekends saturday saturday only because nobody works on sunday nobody <laughs> and like you can't get that beer to like to get the impression otherwise the bigger uh, craft producers they do um, a variety of styles um, and it's quite decent and sometimes it's like extremely good uh, very impressive and hobby beers also can be really good um it depends on the area so in the area closer to German border, they do more mm -hmm. classical stuff. Uh, the closer to France, the more they have breweries doing sour beers and barrel aging programs. Uh, probably it's because people there are more used to this um, winey type of yeah. flavors and aromas. So it's easier to sell. Uh, yeah, but you can find whatever you want in Switzerland. It's tiny, but the variety is huge. Now you're you're talking about the influence of the country, countries around it. Are you are you seeing anything come out that that appears to be uniquely Swiss? Mm, in terms of flavors, I don't know. I haven't um, I haven't experienced anything like yet that yet. Uh, probably some processes. Uh, for example, I had a beer, which a brewery aged in a barrel in a dam so basically it was uh 110 percent of humidity and oh, it wow. was like a dam in alps so it was like high gravity dam and that was interesting story so but i i can't say it's something like uniquely swiss so other brewers doing that yeah interesting well what about the um the the experience of of Swiss beer from all these uh, hobby producers and and commercial brewers and and the the type of food that you'd sit if if I were coming to visit to Switzerland what could I expect from the food and the beer uh, collision? So obvious answer is a lot of cheese. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a stereotype, but it's cheese. There is so many fantastic cheeses in Switzerland, and they are also like very typical to different locations into different cantons. So lots of cheese, um, fondue in winter, raclette in summer and mm. spring and autumn. Um, also like lots of sausages as well, different of different type, um, dried or roasted or fried. So. It's like a very hearty uh, food, very filling and very enjoyable. And what I really like about fondue, it's because it's so shareable. So it's yeah. a perfect, it's a perfect dish to uh, gather with friends around the table and um, have few big bottles of beer shared also in glasses and enjoy the food. So yeah, fondue is that type of meal. That is best described as just an experience. Yes, you will eat. Yes, you will get full if you eat enough. But the purpose of that is just to have that uh, conviviality, that that experience of of togetherness. That that is such a a great comment. And I I I had forgotten about fondue. I need to put that on my list to have this winter. But um, what a great thing. 
Yeah, sure. Like the bee is itself a, a thing of sharing for me, at least. And they yeah. pair perfectly in this uh, sense. Well, and, and Swiss is, uh, Switzerland is also known for its chocolate. Is, is there, uh, are you guys having the, the chocolate fondue at, for dessert after afterwards with beers? Well, no, usually we just uh, have some chocolates or sweets uh, because, yeah, there is a lot of different producers and they do a lot of uh, various stuff and confectionery and, yeah. But I, I haven't seen a beer paired with chocolate too often. It all mm. depends on, you know, the geekiness of the event. Yeah, I've seen some uh, events doing pairing of chocolate and beer, but it's not really spread here. Unfortunately, I love pairing beer with sweets and cakes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I've done a little bit of research on this. Pairing beer with chocolate can be tricky, but what, when it's done right, it's it's just incredible. But uh, but it's not as easy and as obvious as people would think. Um, there's a lot of um, a lot of things can go wrong because because chocolate uh, can be as complex and as vast as beer. Yeah, um, sure. And and so it's just I mean you you've got way too many um, things to to work through on that plate. It's it's just overwhelming. But but when they come together, they're wonderful. That's true. So That's true. You, so you have to, yeah, beer have to stand up to that chocolate. So if it's complex, the beer should be also complex and rich because they will over overpower each other. But yeah, I had fantastic dark chocolate with oranges. And John yeah. uh, Stad, that was fantastic. Yeah, there's uh, it, with all the principles of food pairing, I found um, cancellation is one of those things that really kind of comes up. Um, uh, the the more you go down that food pairing rabbit hole, so to speak, and and with flavors canceling each other, I've never experienced the canceling effect quite as profound as with beer and chocolate. Uh, you know, I just the sweetness and the roastiness. Chocolate so fatty as well. Mm. Maybe, maybe that's the reason. But well, we we will see. Um, so that so that's Switzerland, and you happen to be in Switzerland now. Um, but one of the things we we need to talk about is is naturally Ukraine, and there's a there's a lot of as a, as of the time of this recording. There's a lot of international news and things going on in Ukraine that um, I, I've got to be sensitive and delicate. That should not should not be happening. Um, what I want to know about this is a beer podcast, not NPR or anything else like that. Tell us about the beer scene in Ukraine before the war, before the Russian invasion. Sure. Um, well. In terms of beer, um, I would say Ukraine is quite a young scene. Well, obviously we had uh, like classical influence, like um, it was mostly German and Czech style beer lagers, which were approved um, quite time ago. Um, but in terms of new wave beers, like craft beers, whatever you call them, uh, it's all started quite recently. The first brewery to call itself Kraft was established in 2012, so just mm. 10 years ago. And that was a um, contract brewery, uh, which, call, which was named Collider. And they brewed um, on the base of a 
brew pop, you know, like this type of brew pops, which have also very pub-like food and they brew, they have a small brewing installation and they have this recipes coming with the brewing installation with, and they're brewing pale, um, with beer, something dark, and that's it. But they use that installation to start brewing IPAs and APAs. And I guess in that year, we've seen mostly um, old breweries of the first wave establishing. Um, and um, I would say during that time, we've been maybe five, five years back in comparison with overall um, world beer culture, you know, just discovering stuff. Um, of course, um, the flavor perception was very influenced by imports. And uh, it was very funny because all the IPAs we had, which were coming from US, they were quite old. And yeah, when people tasted them, they were like honeyed and like um, caramelly sweet. Mm -hmm. And they had no idea that an IPA or APA should be bitter, like hoppy. Um, yeah. I, I can't say sharp, but crisp and enjoyable. And then they tasted the first beers brewed in Ukraine. They said like, why it's so bitter? Oh, because <laughs> it should be. And they said, no, 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 no. I had a proper craft beer from US and it was sweet. You can't explain to people that it shouldn't be like that. But bit by bit, we overcame that. And the funny stuff that brewers were some brewers were trying to sell beer and, um, you know, go in the direction of expectations of customers. So we had this, uh, this period of gem like, um, IPAs, like, uh, Swedish, um, like this bitter orange gem marmalade stuff. Uh, Interesting. But, yeah. We overcome that, uh, eventually. And uh, also, it was really difficult to get fresh ingredients uh, because it's not, Ukraine is not a part of EU and customs makes everything way more complicated. Mm. Um, we also had this notion that all, all imported stuff is by default better than local. It was like very, um, like very, very old notion. It, concern everything, um, all the goods, clothing, everything. But bit by bit, again, we overcame that. And um, in the recent few years, maybe two, we we did a huge leap forward. So cold IPAs, yes, we have it. Barrel aging programs, yes, we have it. Um, Bioprospecting, yes, there are breweries doing their own yeast programs and um, alternative hop products. Yes, we do be, we do be with them as well. Um, so we just used all the experience, uh, for example, us brewers had spending like 30, 40, 50 years, uh, accumulating and we've got it easily available. So that's why the progress was so fast. And, yeah. um, it's very exciting to see how fast it's moving. So like, it's only 10 years old, but now it's on par with any European country, I would say. And the main problem was obviously, um, price point. Um, we didn't have too much, uh, 
disposable income, but recently it was getting better as well. So we have a we have a dedicated uh, audience which is big enough for any brewery to do any crazy experiment they want and they will be sure that they will be able to sell it so they don't have this limitation but it's only for smaller ones you can't be big and uh, brew something weird for example like this is a thing which we've been doing for at least five years uh tomato beers or other pickle style beers because we pickle everything and we love our pickles and that's uh, also where the cultural thing coming in. We have this huge um, variety of pickled stuff in our cuisine and the flavor, it just connects. Then you drink beer or you smell beer, it immediately connects to your memory. And that's that's why it's easier to give people to taste something and then ask what they think before telling them like, this is a tomato beer or this is a cucumber beer. And like, what? But then they taste it and they're absolutely happy about it. There there are plenty of things that when you say them out loud, just sound awful. Like trying to describe garlic to someone who is not from, you know, any country that uses, well, all countries use garlic. But, you know, trying to describe garlic or truffles or something like that. Um, uh, beers with Britannomyces. It, it it smells like a sweaty uh, farm animal. Yeah, yeah that's it, true. <laughs> it, it, it smells like uh, like uh, cow poop on the, on the pasture. Uh, but yeah, I mean that in a really good way. <laughs> you know, it's it, it it when you describe it, it sounds awful. But these flavors, you you said it perfectly. They they take you to a place that represents home or safety or comfort or somewhere wonderful that you want to go back to on occasion. And and I would love to try these tomato beers um, j- just for the standpoint of, you know, we say tomato beer, and I'm sure there might be a few people listening to just go, ooh, that doesn't sound great. Um, and I've known people have tried pickled beers and, you know, they're polarizing. You either love them or hate them. Yeah, that's true. It's like either love or hate beer. Yeah. But but when you taste that, um, uh, you know, like like uh, here in the U.S. or at least where I am on the West Coast of the U.S. Um, and I grew up in, in in California, so the the um, influence of Mexico uh, is prominent in my life. And so we have like the micheladas, yes. um, where where they add the uh, uh, clamato, which is tomato and clam juice, um, which sounds horrible, but it's briny and wonderful. And they add all these spices and it's and and acid and and. And when you taste it, it's one of those things where, like, on paper, this should be disgusting. But I love it. (laughs) I I think that's, uh, I mean, for you, that will be the closest, closest analog, Michelada. And um, everything started with just a goza, a space, and tomato. But then all the hell broke loose. We had so many different variations with Tabasco, with chilies, with celery, with everything you can imagine. It's exactly the same, um, I would say, gastronomical approach as with micheladas because there is multitude of them available and everybody does them by their own recipe or their own preference. And that's the same with beers. We had uh, hot tomato variations or just sour and umami One of my favorites I had in January was a beer with tomatoes 
and also a Georgian spice, um, which and all and green olives. So <laughs> it sounds like how can you add everything in beer? But that was divine. I I couldn't get enough of that. It def it definitely tasted very savory, very um, I don't know foodie like you know all yeah. this stuff. But yeah, that was amazing. So it sounds like a uh, applying the uh, culinary prowess to not not pairing this this food with beer, but we're going to create this beer that has its own culinary tradition or this culinary uh, kind of uh, aspect to it, and and uh, I find that fascinating. Um, and whether and I've had some that I did not like. Um, I, I was uh, judging a beer competition once, and and there was a brewery who sent a bunch of beers that uh, that were named after salad dressings. And I, and I don't know if it was a joke or if they if they thought these were great, but uh, I, I didn't I did not like these beers. There were some judges that were absolutely offended, um, but it was an interesting flavor component to have like ranch dressing in with a beer and as a flavor component um it's not something i want to drink again but i love that they tried it i love that it was like hey what what if what if it is something we love we won't know unless we try yeah i'm i'm absolutely agree because uh sometimes it can be a beer just for a sake of uh playing around with the ingredients and trying what works and what doesn't so um we had uh, like a lot of breweries doing that. So they are brewing a batch of beer and then they split the batch and they do different variations yeah. of this tomato beer with different spices. Oh, that's awesome. Um, shallots, uh, garlic, dill, uh, everything you can imagine, like creating a pickled style thing. And sometimes it's not only like Ukrainian food inspired, it's, it can be world cuisine inspired. For example, we had a lot of beers also inspired by sauces, um, Georgian sauces or um, East, like we had a kind of Tom Yum beer stuff. Mm. Uh, so, but of course, one of the main trends now is Borscht inspired beer. Borscht is um, a traditional beetroot soup in Ukraine. It also have a lot, a lot of variations. So, but mainly all of them contain beetroot, potatoes, and tomatoes. So it's red, it's savory, and breweries doing their takes on uh, this traditional dish, and that's for sure love or hate beer. But sometimes, like uh, a friend of mine who he um, he runs a shop in Kiev called Dealer, and he says that then he has this Bosch beer uh, available. It's a bestseller, and sometimes he just opens the bottle to pour just a bit to a person who's not uh, familiar with beers like this, okay. and he said, "I had." no bottle thrown away. So they either finish it or buy another to take away. Wow. I you think know, it's, it, it's, it's in your brain. If you like the food, you can't not like the beer, which reminiscent of that food. 
Well, you bring up – this is such a fascinating topic to me, um, and, it, and it just reminded me I actually had a, a sour beer from Cascade Brewing in Portland, Oregon. Um, they made a blonde sour with saffron, and mm-hmm. uh, and saffron is that um, – is that flower where you uh, use the petals and it makes your food uh, yellow and have this unique flavor. They use it a lot in Spanish paella and other dishes. And it was one of those things where why in the world are we putting saffron in a beer? Why are we putting it in a sour, let alone of any beer? And I got to tell you, it was sublime. It was amazing. I couldn't I couldn't stop drinking it. And unfortunately, they put those beers in small cans. I needed more of that. Or actually, it was, I'm sorry, it was a bottle. But I couldn't stop. I was trying to get every last drop out of that because the flavor was good. The balance was perfect. But the but the flavors just really took me to that place. That I was no longer in... in Portland, Oregon. I was on in, in Valencia, Spain, you know, or some far offshore, just tasting something that that you know is not part of my my um, my normal life. But it, it was it, it just expanded my life in in a, in a flavorful way that um, was just extraordinary and obviously memorable. So uh, my my quick PSA for anyone listening to this: if you do get a chance to travel and you see something that's just weird uh, by your standard try it anyway it may just blow your mind yeah that that that's the i i always plan my vacations around beer so all of them are vacations now but also yeah. i really yeah. love to discover local food and this is why i really love this gastronomical type of beers because they take me places they show me uh what's the cuisine is like in different countries but this is also, uh, you know, a double-edged sword because if you're not familiar with this flavor and you discover it in beer, it can be very confusing. For example, um, we took this tomato beer to Scandinavia to this Swedish uh, beer festival with a lot of people coming from different parts of the world. And there was two gauzes, one with cucumber, and one with tomato. So pickled cucumber is like everyone know gherkins. Everyone had burgers. Uh, gherkin is like such a um, flavor. Like it's it's nothing weird, and everybody knows them. But they couldn't put the flavor of tomato beer, so they had no idea what why it tastes like and what the, it reminds them of. So that was that was like very very interesting just to see the faces of people you know like how they change and um yeah but it's the most important part is not to be offended by reaction because it's just a flavor preference if you can't put the flavor or taste on your map of experience it can be really challenging so yeah you have to be open-minded and enjoy everything on your way (laughs) Yeah, but you know, and one of the other things I think about too is one of my favorite Pixar movies that I watched a hundred thousand times with my, particularly my daughter, was uh, Ratatouille. Uh, you've seen Ratatouille, where the the evil 
food critic <laughs> comes in and he finally tastes the ratatouille toward the end of the movie and and he takes one bite of it and suddenly you know there's this little flash of like him going back to his childhood memory and that's the thing i love about flavor it, we try to use language to explain our flavor but language fails us in this instance um your experiences are going to be different from mine. And if we're trying to use the same language, it's not going to translate. Um, but what the best way to communicate this flavor really is, is to just think about it in terms of, of, you know, time or, or place or experience. And that's really the language, the language of food is, is flavor in this experience. And it's hard to communicate that, but you're, you're, you're doing the best I've heard of anyone explain that these flavors communicate this experience, this place that is very special. Well, probably because I really like that experience and I try to get as much people to that place as possible. That's why I try to get people into drinking beer, different types of beer, different styles of beer, because then we drink them together and they are new to this for example, style, they can pick up absolutely beautiful descriptions I would never think of because their experience is completely different from my experience. Yeah. And this is so amazing. And I try to remember the, be the most beautiful uh, descriptions, but like, I won't be able to remember it right now. But uh, yeah, this is again, this is sharing not only the flavor, but memories as well. And so these are the beers that are coming out of Ukraine, uh, that were coming out of Ukraine. Um, tell, well, and you also did a write-up on a specific style that's coming out of, uh, that was coming out of Ukraine, the uh, Ukrainian Golden Ale. Tell us yeah. about that. That's right. Uh, so um, this is kind of complicated topic because, uh, again, you know, then you're a young country with, uh, without centuries and centuries of bee history, you always have this imposter syndrome. Like, yeah. can we have something of our own, which is like so young? But um, the story of Ukrainian golden ale started in 2009, even before the first craft brewery. It was um, a very interesting thing to grow from Reichheiskebat, uh, which is totally unexpected. There was a brewer who brewed beer in a um, big restaurant brewery, but he was like super strict about only four ingredients, nothing else in my beer. Um, and the owner of the brewery, he said like, you have to go and explore. You have to see the world and like, check, check this out, go to Belgium. And he sent him to Belgium. And then he was so impressed by the variety and the like absolute rainbow of flavor yeah. and history and approach to the beer. So uh, he was really enamored with uh, Belgian strong golden ales. And then he came back, he said, okay, I can survive coriander in my beer, but no sugar. So in the end, he wrote this recipe, which was an inspiration from Belgian golden ale, but it was without any uh, specific Belgian yeast profile. He used clean yeast because uh, during that time, 
we had only very limited number of yeast strains available on the market. That's why he did 100% malt bill, so no sugar in his, bill, in his beer. He used uh, Safale S33 yeast, which is quite neutral. And that was high ABV beer. It was 7%. And because of that uh, amount of malt, it was hazy. And in the end, it was very, very sweet. So basically, it's not a Belgian golden ale because it doesn't have the specific yeast profile and it's sweet in the end, in, uh, in contrast to Belgian beers. Um, it has coriander and it's higher in ABV than British golden ale, but people loved it so much that it was a bestseller. But then um, it was in 2009 and then in 2014 uh, war started it was in Donetsk so he had to move and both of them brewer and the owner started brewing this beer in the next places they settled down mm. because it reminded them of home and people who moved also it reminded them of home and it's not uh, it's not a vow beer it's it it doesn't impress you as something very special, but um, it wasn't considered very high ABV because uh, normal ABV content in beer in Ukraine in lager is 5.5. So 5.5, oh, okay, yeah. 9, it's not that big difference. But Ukrainians have a sweet tooth, so they really liked it. They're like full-bodied. Um, sweet uh, finish. Oh, it's not very sweet, but it's the finishing gravity is pretty high. And also they split into two directions. So there is one, I would say, school of Ukrainian golden ale, which is a bit drier. Okay. And another one, which is following the, uh, like the first prototype, which is sweeter. And also this beer has just a bit of cold hopping to give it a bit more fruitiness. So, they started to brew that beer and people were like really liking it because it was really accessible. It's not very bitter. It's not punching you in your face. Um, it was hazy uh, and reminded people of German beers and people th thought for a very long time that German beers are the best possible. So yeah, they started drinking it in quantities and at the festivals, uh, they also came and asked for this beer. So more and more breweries started brewing it. And last year, which was not the best year because of COVID, Ukrainians drank at least 1.25 millions of liter of golden ale. So it's, it's hugely popular as accessible beer, as a stepstone into craft as well. So we decided like, why not to get it recognized as a local style. Yeah. We did, uh, like, we gathered all the information from the brewers to see if there is a similarity in a recipe. So we didn't ask for recipe, just ask questions. And then we did a tasting. So to describe the beer properly, the profile of it. And then we sent the description to BGCP and this year also to Brewers Association guidelines 
we will see. It's not a very uh, quick process at all. So, but we are hopeful. Um, while they are um, verifying the style, we are trying to do as much collaborations as possible. So, how the way the the way to people to discover beer is through collaborations because otherwise it wasn't exported anywhere. It wasn't brought to festivals because, well, usually at the festival you bring your craziest, the most impressive beer, and this is not that. But um, everywhere where the collaborations took places or other breweries just brewed it, they say, actually, the feedback is way better than we expected. You know, it's a beer which grows on you. Uh, I wasn't a big uh, believer in the first place myself, but it's 14 years old and it's not going anywhere. It's not a fake. It's not a, you know, um, a style which got popular for some time and then everybody forgot about it. It's still there. Yeah. No matter of it, no matter everything, it's still there. So. I hope we will be able to get there eventually. I I am looking forward to tasting that or brewing that myself or trying to figure out a way to to explore this 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 emerging style and 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 I hope you know knock on wood that uh, someday um, you know when we look at uh, styles um, you know uh, formal styles whether it's the BJCP or somewhere else that that is something that is acknowledged as this is a world style that is unique to this place. Um, cause it, it, you know, in no disrespect to my American heritage, but most, the vast majority of all of our styles that are considered American are variations of what was once European. Um, the only styles that are uniquely American really are the California common and the Kentucky common, but you know, IPA, what that came from Europe, the pale ale, the all the stuff. So we we've successfully taken something that someone else has created and made it our own, and that is wonderful. And I I hope that uh, at some point, um, you know, Ukraine will get the the credit it deserves of creating the style that that um, you know not every not every beer style has to uh, be a, a new, a mind-blowing experience. Sometimes it's nice to just go back and have a good, solid, drinkable beer. Yeah, it's it's beer for drinking, not for tasting. Yeah. That's how I explain <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a few of those. Um, Again, you know, like um, why uh, we wanted to be recognized for its merit of its own is because it's like, you know, a never ending circle, like Ouroboros biting its own tail. Then mm -hmm. you get the style into the guidelines. People know about it because otherwise they can't know about it. But to get to, the, to that guidelines, you have to prove that the beer is existing and mm -hmm. the style is existing. And here, like, look, we've brewed here, we've brewed there. So yeah, it's, it's a step-by-step -step process, but yeah. And, I think the more the better because this is the essence of craft beer. It started to get away from the sameness. Yeah. So and, and, and it transcends beer, really. It transcends beer, and it's really a discussion about culture. Uh, and, and so the more we have in in the style guidelines, whoever publishes it, I think we're better off. Um, as long as it's different enough from something else, then let's let's stick it in there. 
Um, one of the other things, um, I, we're running short on time, but one thing I think is important to talk about too is is the uh, the agriculture of Ukraine. Um, I, I just did a little bit of research, um, and a significant portion of the uh, of the world's barley and wheat come from Ukraine. Well, um, this is the thing which is like I've been very curious about the um, rise of prices because mostly the barley we grow in Ukraine is uh, cattle feed barley. It's not a oh, growing okay. barley, but uh, since the price for cattle feed barley goes up, farmers prefer to sell their barley to do uh, to this part of uh, agriculture. So they're not selling it to maltries. They are selling it to farmers to feed their cattle. That's okay. why the price is going up. But also um, Ukraine is in this uh, hop growing belt and we have quite a history of uh, hop growing. Um, and we have um, an institute which uh, does selection. So we, we even have our own uh, hop varieties. But again, because people think that all the imported stuff is better by default, we have very few breweries using, uh, I mean, craft breweries using these hops. And also the thing, like, as everywhere in agriculture, it's really hard labor. And young generation yeah. doesn't really want to go and grow hops. They want to be like something more exciting. They want to be on their phone. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just call what I it know, is. Like maybe, but again, um, so the uh, generation of hop growers is uh, quite aged and they are not really prone to doing something experimental and crazy. So that's why they are not growing other types or varieties of hops, probably uh, if they would grow like, I don't know, Cascade or uh, something which is not trademark and yeah. maybe they would be more efficient, but we are going there very, very slowly because everything we need is there. The great soil, good climate, the position on the hop growing belt, it's all there. We just have to um, pay a little bit more attention, probably, uh, I don't know, maybe state support or like a campaign of sorts in between brewers. We will see. We will, we will move there. That's well, for sure. I I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Cascade hop because uh, that, that has such a wonderful story of, of back in the day. Uh, they were trying to come up with a an, an American version of a noble hop, right? Um, yeah. And they came up with Cascade and it just had all these you know aromas and flavors that were just wrong. And so they, they shelved it. It's like, oh, that's a failure. Um, and that, next thing you know, the craft beer movement comes along and that, that becomes the, the hop that defines yeah. Yeah. the American flavor. This is, this is our hop. And, and what was once a failure is, is now the thing that defines uh, American pale and IPAs and for generations. It was, it was, it was wonderful. So ho hopefully the same thing will happen with Ukrainian hops and, um, given, given the war going on there and the, I, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable calling it a war. It's an invasion. Um, uh, I, I don't like to get political, but I'm just going to call a duck a duck. This, this is an invasion in Ukraine. How much of that infrastructure of beer and, and agriculture, everything else is still intact at this point as of this recording? Well, um, 
talking about the um, fields, uh, it's like you just can open the map and see what is still occupied. Yeah. But um, in terms of impact on the breweries, uh, obviously some were completely demolished. Some moved to other cities uh, and doing contract brewing now. Uh, but what really inspired me and gave me hope that how they came as one helping people. I know some breweries were um, dispensing milk from their systems because there was no way to dispense milk or bottling water and sending it to the cities which needed water. Or I know a brewery did, um, they remade, uh, so they made uh, heating systems out of kegs, so like small fire heat yeah. systems. And um, yeah, some breweries, uh, some brewers enlisted into army, some will never come back. But yeah, we'll st we will, we're still surviving. And the main problem is um, people are not thinking about beer right now. So it's yeah. not a priority. So um, mainly breweries are trying to find ways to sell beer, to export beer, which is one way of surviving. Um, also now with all the power outrages, it's very difficult to brew because like, okay, you can have yeah. a small generator and if it's about bottling or canning, you can go on on that. But um, if you're brewing and the power go goes off, so the batch is spoiled, you have to throw it away. So that's, this is, this is also really complicates the planning, but yeah, people are, they are not scared. They're angry and they say we will prevail. So that's why they are still doing their job. Um, they are paying people wages, they're paying taxes. So everyone doing whatever they want, they can. And even, even drinkers, uh, there's so many. Um, auctions going on right now. So people are picking up the best um, bottles from their sellers and they auction them and uh, fundraise the money to help the army. So um, everyone, everyone is doing what they can. But yeah, it's, I know it's, uh, it sounds a bit gloomy and dark, but you know, the darkest time is before the sunrise yeah yeah i i love that um and and of course we do know that in historical accounts of war that beer is not the priority <clears throat> and um but there are also these things of of you know people just playing music in the trenches or or finding moments of joy and just relief from reality um, and, and a way to bring people together. And beer is one of those things, not the only thing, but one of those things that can provide that just immediate relief or that, um, or just that little hint of joy, that just a way to bring people together. And so hopefully for all those, those who are resisting in, in Ukraine are finding those moments. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Absolutely true. Um, uh, and before we start our kind of close out, uh, questioning process, um, for anyone listening, is there, what can, what can the rest of the world do 
to help support Ukraine? Well, um, I think I, I've, I've been asked this question so many times uh, since February. And, yeah, I'm uh, sure. And my, my answer will, will remain the same. So talking about this and keeping the conversation live uh, is the most essential because people's nature is they tend to switch focus. So I know people want to have a better news, nicer news, um, more, I don't know, especially during the celebration time and Christmas time, they want to read and hear about something positive. But just keeping the conversation live is uh, very important. And um, yeah, um, buying Ukrainian products, uh, supporting, we have a huge number of refugees uh, who left Ukraine. And like, I know almost everyone has a Ukrainian living nearby or they know they moved. So you can just do something very small for them, help them, ask them what do they need. Um, I know some breweries were just reaching out to Ukrainian breweries asking like, do you need some help? Because we know you have to pay wages to people. Yeah. So to, to, for them to feed their families, this is also an option. There's a huge number of fundraisers you can choose a small one, you can choose a local one, because again, I think everyone has uh, a small Ukrainian charity, which is local. So probably it's better to stay as local as possible and help where you can without like sending money to a huge fund and you don't know where that money is going. So yeah, probably the best is to keep as local as possible like help the Ukrainians which are closer to you. Well, and against better advice, I'll, I'll mention this on air, but what if we've got a, a, a bunch of breweries around the world to brew that Ukrainian golden ale and use the proceeds to go towards Ukraine? Yeah. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a cool thing? Yeah. Yeah. We did, um, we did something, um, similar, um, we had a drinkers for Ukraine um, initiative. So one part of that was a solidarity brew. Um, it was a anti-imperial stout with beetroot. Again, that was <laughs> Porsche was the inspiration. Yeah. So um, right now, as far as I know, the breweries I know did the beer. It's about 140 around the world. So they, they did variation with beetroot, without beetroot. For example, in Japan, uh, there was a beer without beetroot because they, it's not typical to their culture and agriculture, but yeah, they did the beer and they sent the proceeds to either a charitable organization of their choice or to the brewery of their choice, um, or to the local uh, charity of their choice. So we are not asking for like feedback and report us how much money you uh, raised. So like it's all uh, absolutely, but we just give it a canvas. So we, we, we gave the recipe, but people don't have to follow it to the last sure. point. It's just a way to help. So 
this is this is something we wanted to do and people wanted to us to tell them how to do that so that's that's the solidarity brew we started in i think in march hmm. but i'm all hands up for ukrainian golden ale the more the better yeah, absolutely and 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 bringing an end to this madness going on there um, okay, let's switch gears. Um, uh, we're very short on time, so um, let, let's let's let, let's just get to it. Um, tomorrow, Juana, you get to be the queen of the entire beer world. What's the first thing you're going to change? Oh, jeez, uh, this is a complicated question. Okay. The first thing I want to change, bring more variety back. Because like nowadays it's all about hazy IPAs. <laughs> oh, bring yeah. more variety back. That's I think that that would be my first um, ruling. Excellent. Excellent. I, 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 I love that one as well. Um, it's funny to hear that, you know, as much as the hazy IPAs are proliferating throughout the U.S., it's funny to hear that it's, you know, very much the same elsewhere. Um, they are everywhere. They are I've everywhere. been to, I've been to uh, Singapore. They are everywhere. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, now, at the end of your uh, your royal day, you get to go anywhere on Earth and have anything you want to eat and anything you want to drink. Where would you go, and what would you have? Mm. Well, you know, I always turn about going to a new place. Or go into a place I know and love and enjoy all the time. So probably if we are talking about a city, uh, Portland is very high on priority list. And I know there's a great food culture, street food mm -hmm. culture and great bee culture. So this is like a perfect place to go and enjoy food and beer. Or if we are talking about the place I've been to, I would really love to go back to Japan because I really love uh, their attitude to foods as well. And uh, I've been there, I think three years, yes, three years ago. And their uh, beer saying is also really, really exciting. They are doing their absolutely uh, separate way so of course there is a lot of uh, international trends going on but uh, they have such a huge variety of beers with absolutely unknown ingredients as well as brazil by the way so mm. japan or brazil for sure awesome um uh, another big question why does good beer matter so much to you because it's so tasty <laughs> simple i love it <laughs> Just, you don't need, you don't need like complicated answers. Just like all the best things are usually so simple. Good beer, nice people, um, sunset, the day without rain, all this like simple pleasures. Oh, a cat walking by. I love cats. Uh, <laughs> so these things, they are so simple. You don't have to overcomplicate your life to enjoy it. Perfect. Um, for anyone who's listening to this, if they want to connect with you, learn more about your books, learn more about um, Ukrainian Golden Ale, what, whatever it may be, how can they connect with you to uh, learn more? Um, 
so I am I'm a dinosaur. I have only Facebook, no other social media. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm I'm available on Facebook Lana Svitenkova or or on Gmail the same uh, Lana Svitenkova at Gmail. If you have any questions, please reach out. Let's chat. I love chatting with people about beer and about everything. Um, yep. And um, talking about Ukrainian golden ale, I know that like the, this article coming uh, in craft beer and brewing with a story and with a recipe. So if anyone is interested, they can pick it up and brew it. Awesome. Uh, and last thing, do you have any uh, words of wisdom or calls to action or anything? The, the, the stage is yours. Do you have anything final to say? Be a grown up. Don't drink beer you don't like. That is the first time I've heard that on here. And that is fantastic. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thank you so much for for coming onto the podcast and being willing to discuss, you know, Ukraine um, and, and uh, you know, the wonderful parts of it and the, the hard parts of what's going on. Um, but thank you for just kind of sharing the experience of, of your perspective in our little beer world. I appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and honor to be here, to be a guest. For this episode, I need to step out of my usual routine and ask everyone listening to support the end of the war in Ukraine and anywhere else. I'm not naive, bad stuff happens in the world, but there's a better way to deal with differences. Maybe, just maybe, if we put Ukrainian golden ale on the negotiations table, we'd have a better chance. In the next episode, we head to the US to see how a tropical beer brand is filling the gap between big beer and craft. I'm on a virtual tour of the craft and culture of beer around the globe. I've put Good Beer Matters on video so I can take you along for the ride. If you know of a person, a place, or a beer story that needs to be told, let me know. Meanwhile, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let your world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. <laughs>